Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Hi there, Don Wardlow here, your friendly neighborhood baseball lifer, welcoming you to this week's show where journalist Evan Weiner is going to be our guest. He recently did a series of talks. I was lucky enough to attend one of those, and it was fascinating to hear him talk about baseball, and that's what we'll do as a part of this broadcast. Before we do that, we'll hear part of Who's On First, the famous Abbott and Costello routine, because part of Evan Weiner's chat with us is about Who's On First. He has some details about that comedy bit that I never knew. But before we get on here, I'm going to have to say that I made myself look a little silly last week. I was talking about how I thought the Texas Rangers were dead meat. And, well... They went into Canada for a four-game series, and they swept the Toronto Blue Jays. It is difficult to sweep anybody in their own crib. Even the Kansas City Royals, as brutal as they are, they even could win one game in their crib in a four-game series. But the Blue Jays didn't manage it against a Texas Rangers team that just doesn't make sense to me because they keep losing players injured. Max Scherzer finished for the year. Jacob deGrom long since finished for the year. A couple of their outfielders have gone down just in their series against the Jays. Mitch Garver, for one, heaven only knows when he'll be back. So how the Rangers have stayed in the playoff picture, I don't know, but stay in it they did because they won four in a row in the land of truly superior beer and whiskey. Now the Rangers are going to play the Cleveland Ball Club this weekend. We'll see what happens from there. Houston is still in it in the West, and and Seattle is still a going concern in the American League West. The East and the West in that league, the American, those are the two divisions that raise the most interest. The Baltimore Orioles are part of a four-game series against Tampa Bay, and the Rays won the first game. So the Rays took game one on Thursday night, and they have three more to go at Camden Yards. Over in the National League, the West is almost done. The East is absolutely done. The Braves clinched, and the Dodgers are about to. I'm surprised they haven't done it yet. If they had more of their pitching, they would clinch it. And I'm concerned about their pitching when, when we get to the playoffs because, again, like the Rangers, so many of the Dodger pitchers are done for the year. Walker Bueller has taken the entire year off. Uh, Julio Urias got himself in legal trouble, so we won't see him again in 2023. Uh, Dustin May out for the year for the Dodgers. Tony Gonsolin out for the year for the Dodgers, all of these pitchers. But the Dodgers have continued to find warm bodies, at least for the regular season. How good they'll do in the postseason starting October 3rd, that remains to be seen. So from here, this is where we'll go. 
you're going to hear Abbott and Costello, who's on first. Then we'll go direct to our advertising for Cortland Computer Services, our sponsor. And then from there, we'll go right to the interview with Evan Weiner, sports journalist, podcast host, and a man who delivered a series of talks concerning baseball, which we'll get into that during the interview. That's all the stuff you'll hear if you keep it right where you got it. Well, Costello, I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Abbott, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ballplayers nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. Well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Well, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. Look, all I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> all I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. Around. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's <laughs> How did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mentioned a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. <laughs> Look, will you stay on third base right. and don't go off it? All right, I don't even know. Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Oh, what is on second? You don't want who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base? base. <laughs> Look, you got outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield. <laughs> I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third, Third base. <laughs> and the left fielder's name? Why? Because. Oh, he's center field. Me, he's Look, look, look. You got a pitcher on a team? Sure. The pitcher's name? Tomorrow. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you, then man. Go ahead. Tomorrow. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow you're going to tell me who's pitching? Now, listen. Who is not pitching? I'll who break is... your arm, you say. Who's on first? <laughs> I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. Third base. Got a catcher? Certainly. The catcher's name? Today. Today. And tomorrow's pitcher. Now you've got it. All we got is a couple of days on the team. You know, I'm a catcher too. So they tell me. I get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Tomorrow's pitching on my team, and a heavy hitter gets up. Yes. Now, the heavy hitter bunts the ball. When he bunts the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. Well, that's all you have to do. Just to throw the ball to first base. Yes. I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball, and the guy runs a second. Yes. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it? I don't know. I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow. Triple play. Yes. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be caught. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. Well, what? I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. I'm in it. Come on. <laughs>
I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down, and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860. courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here, and my guest is journalist Evan Weiner, the host of the podcast, The Politics of Sports Business. Evan, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Thank you, Don. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you uh, for coming out to uh, my talk on baseball and the American culture. I think well, it was in June, right? Was that part of a series that you were doing? Did you travel around and uh, do that? Well, uh, I, I, I'm in the tri-state area. Uh, prior to COVID, I was on cruise ships giving a lot of talks. And it's just not on uh, baseball. It's uh, yeah, I'm a journalist, and uh, I didn't start out as a sports journalist. I started out actually covering politics. And among the things that I did by the time I was 23 years old was interview Ronald Reagan, who was on the campaign trail in 1980. Uh, before I was 25, I covered the returning hostages from Iran, um, was at the Democratic National Convention in 1980, uh, covered the presidential election, Ted Kennedy in New Jersey and a whole bunch of others uh, in 1980. So that's where I started out. And when I got to sports, I realized the same people who were behind politics were behind sports. And um, I... I was quite bored with covering baseball games or football games. It's it's always the same thing. It's like, well, when you hit that pitch, what were you looking for? Or, you know, uh, when you got that block, did you get out to the left side and run down the sidelines? Or when you scored that goal, do you think that that was the goal that won the game? And that's quite boring after a while, at least to me. And I started looking for other things, uh, other things, talking to guys. And I hooked up with John Madden for 15 years. He did uh, two uh, vignette shows on radio, and it was all stories, all stories. And that's how I ended up with all those stories, because I interviewed all those guys and um, met quite a few people. And I found that, uh, to me, covering sports, I'd rather hear the stories. Same thing with politics. I, I, the the nitty gritty is not, I, mean, I could do it. There's no problem doing it, but I love the stories 
uh, just to sit back and forth and listen to the stories. And I know uh, Mike Veck was your boss, right, at some point? Yes, he was for quite yeah, a while. And uh, Bill Veck, I'll give you a quick Bill Veck story, and then we'll get on to what you want to do. Uh, late 70s, early 80s, I guess it's uh, the time when Reinsdorf is about ready to buy the White Sox from Veck. And Veck is sitting around, and he reaches uh, for a cigarette. He was a chain smoker, and he lost his leg in World War II, I believe World War II. And he, he had, you know, artificial leg. And uh, he's smoking, and he doesn't have an ashtray. So he takes the leg off. There's an ashtray built into the leg. He pops it open, starts smoking, talking like, uh, hey, you know what? That's it. I'm smoking here. And, uh, oh, and by the way, it is my artificial leg, but, you know, no big deal. So that's, that's my remembrance of Bill Veck more than anything else. And only Bill Veck could and would do such a thing. Yes, he did lose the leg in the Pacific in World War II. And this is how he used his artificial leg and got a few laughs at the same time. Now, I or, like to or, or he Or he startled people. Oh, absolutely. And now, one thing I like to talk about with a lot of my guests is the first time, whether it be your first kiss, your first car, in my case, my first seeing eye dog. Now, we both got our first taste of radio young. You, even younger than me. I was 20 when I did my first baseball game. Your first appearance was on WRKL radio in Rockland County when you were 15 years old. What did you yeah, do yeah. and say on that station at that time? It was the worst show ever on radio. Of course. The <laughs> first time doubt. is always that. So is uh, mine. You don't want to hear my first game. I was I was at Spring Valley High School, and I had a teacher by the name of Joe Dionisio. He's my English teacher, and uh, and um, I knew him then. Then I reconnected with him about forty five years later. In the last five years of his life, we we talked. And uh, anyway, he was an English teacher. He had a bad wig, and it was nineteen seventy one. He had the he still had leftover neighbor jackets, um, which were out of style by that point. So he's looking around the room and he's listening. And he said, hey, student, student, you have a good voice. How would you like to be in radio? And I said, in the worst way, in the worst way. And I was I'm on this radio show called Tiger Talk, which was about the uh, Spring Valley High School in Rockland County, New York, 1971-72, uh, about the uh, going on in uh, Spring Valley High School. We're on WRKL Radio. Uh, we had one of two high school shows. The other one was Ramapo High School, which was the other high school in the school district I was in, uh, the East Ramapo School District number two. Uh, but maybe more importantly than that, uh, although he got me on radio and uh, I got to uh, talk to Peter Brooks, who was the program director, and he started explaining to me about how you do things in radio and i'm 15 and he's at a 500 a 1000 watt radio station but you know he gave me good advice but more importantly with uh, dionisio he opened the door for me to work at the nyack journal news and the bergen record and i was 15 met a guy by the name of dick yurg worked for them by the time worked for them uh covering uh, what i did was rewrite little league baseball stories and back in the day Yonkers Raceway was a big deal. In fact, they were drawing 40,000 every Saturday night at Yonkers Raceway. And today it's a shell of itself and it's a casino. Um, so I started rewriting that. 
And eventually, uh, I did three stints at the Bergen Record, one in high school, 1979, they brought me in to do features, and uh, they were auditioning me. They ended up uh, choosing Sherry Ross, who ended up uh, being uh, the hockey writer for them. But that was okay, because I was working in radio at that point. And um, I did three stints for the Bergen Record in high school, 79, and also wrote op-ed pieces for them uh, about 2003 to 2007 before they gutted the newspaper their newspaper and now that's part and parcel to the entire newspaper industry it's been gutted so that's you know that's how i started out on the base yeah, oh by the way like dionisio still didn't know my name he called me student all the time even when i got together with him with a whole bunch of other former teachers from spring valley they invited me uh to come to their monthly uh breakfast where i went they were teachers i was a student but it was a little different because they wanted to hear my stories now and yeah they were in their 70s but even then he didn't know my name but i knew at that point it was it was kind of a joke on the baseball lifer podcast with journalist evan weiner i had absolutely no idea you had interviewed the baseball broadcaster who became president, Ronald Reagan. I got to hear him make a speech in his next campaign in 1984 in the town of Hamilton, New Jersey. Now, how did you get to interview the great man and under what conditions? Okay, I was doing some work for WNEW Radio. I'm 20, I, actually, I started at WNEW at the age of 21. It's March of 1978. And uh, John Lindsay, the former mayor of New York City, and I tell this story so many times that even the people who know me could tell the story. Uh, it's uh, March of 1978, and um, my boss, Steve North, whose father, Jules North, was the stage manager for Walter Cronkite's 20th Century and ended up being the stage manager for Johnny Carson at NBC when he was doing The Tonight Show uh, out of, um, out of uh, Rockefeller Center. So Steve's my boss. I'm 21. He's 23. You know, you know, we have loads of experience, right? Anyway, he says uh, the uh, New York State Democrats are having a fundraiser at the uh, Nyack uh, Tappanzee Manor. That's what it's called, the Nyack, New York. And he says uh, it's Saturday. It's one o'clock. You have any problems working weekends? I said no. And uh, he said, uh, well, just go there, get whatever you want. Uh, he gave me a list of who was going to be there. He said, and we'll save it for Monday morning because there's not going to be any news coming out of there. So uh, I walk in there and um, Gerald Nadler walks in and uh, he was an assemblyman at that point. Mario Cuomo walks in. He's got his two kids, Andrew and, Andrew and Chris with him. And uh, the governor of the state of New York was there. You carry along with um, the uh, senator, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Now, actually, I think Moynihan was running for Senate at that point. That's probably what it was. Um, and then in, in comes this good-looking tall guy. I mean, he's a really good-looking tall guy. And I'm the only guy with a microphone in there. Nobody else is covering this. And he spots the microphone. And he walks over to me. And in those days, I'm 21 got the big bushy hair and you know I'm dressed like a 21 year old well actually a little better than the average 21 year old I'm wearing a dress shirt and pants and uh, he comes up he looks at me and I knew who he was because I watched Batman and he was the mayor of Gotham City he was Mayor Lindsay and he comes up to me and he says I like you and he's half in the bag unfortunately but probably fortunately for me he's half in the bag and he says uh, I'm going to tell you something Okay, 
said, I'm running for Senate. I stayed in New York 1980, starting two years prior. And I see that he's kind of like, you know, drifting. And I said, well, can you tell my microphone that? And he does. And uh, I got the story. I got a great scoop. I'm 21 years old. I have a great scoop. I'm out of college less than 10 months. And I have the biggest story in New York. And I'm the only one who has it. So I called up, uh, we're, I was stringing. And for those of you who don't know what stringing is, you're kind of an employee, but you're a per diem employee. But you call them instead of they call you for stories, because that's how it worked in those days. So I called for the Associated Press, a woman by the name of Marlene Egg. Uh, and then there was uh, UPI, Randy Berlage. They put it out. I go back to my radio station. Now, mind you, we don't have it really news until Monday. And this is breaking news at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So I'm putting the story together. And I get a call from Henry Marcotte at WNEW Radio. Henry Marcotte. And he says, I'm Henry Marcotte, WNEW Radio, and we'd like to have that story from you. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, how much are you going to pay me? He said, 10 bucks. I said, 10 bucks sold. And uh, I was on WNEW, and that was the start. So fast forward to January 1980. I'm only 23 years old, and Reagan is doing an appearance at the Bear Mountain Ice Rink. It's seven degrees outside, and uh, it is cold. It's cold as you can get. It's at night, and it's kind of icy driving up there. But anyway, he's doing a fundraiser, which I, to this day, can't understand, except uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush was was the uh, front runner at that point uh, for the for the nomination. And um, so I get there, he gets there, no reporters, there are about six people there. So I got to spend a half hour with him. And he says, well, Evan, uh, you're, uh, how old are you? I said, I'm 23. Well, you got your future ahead of you. And I said, but I'm interested. I want to be a baseball announcer, which I never got to be. He said, when you were on WHO in Des Moines, how did you keep the game going when you were in that Wrigley Field? And he said, I made up a lot of things. <laughs> Nobody knew. Nobody knew. He said, because you would lose the, tel uh, the teletype. You know, it came in by teletype. And you'd be banging pots, making noise, <laughs> all that, waiting for the next thing that came. So he said, he made up the whole thing, uh, the atmosphere at Wrigley Field. And we talked about that. We actually only spent about um, five minutes talking about policy, which was why I was there. I still have the, the uh, recording of me uh, with Reagan, and uh, I have a recording with me and Bill Clinton as well. Uh, and, um, you know, that's one of my prized possessions, interviewing Ronald Reagan, interviewing Bill Clinton. And uh, the highlight of my speaking career was um, speaking for the State Department in 2007 at the George H.W. Uh, Bush Museum down in uh, College Station, Texas. But enough of me. Let's get to you. <laughs> I figured that would have to be a treasure of your collection, the way my recording of hearing President Reagan in Hamilton is a treasure in my collection. It's the baseball broadcaster who became president, and I would later do some recreations. And you do have to kind of make stuff up as you go along, whether you're doing it for real the way he did or for publicity the way we did. Well, Lindsey Nelson said the same thing. He did the uh, recreations. All those guys who did recreations said they made up about 90% of what was going on. With journalist Evan Weiner, when we did the opening for this broadcast before you came on the air, 
we shared with our listeners the Abbott and Costello routine, Who's On First, an yeah. iconic routine in comedy that relates to baseball. And when I heard you speak some time ago, you had a whole interesting bit about who's on first, a lot of which I had absolutely no idea of. I know Costello was from Jersey. I knew that. But I didn't know much else about that famous routine. Yeah, Bud Abbott actually started out as the guy who collected money for the Vaudeville Theater and then got on the stage. Uh, Groucho Marx called him the greatest straight man ever. Uh, and that's high praise coming from Groucho, because Groucho didn't necessarily give out high praise. He teams up with Costello around 1936 um, on the burlesque slash vaudeville circuit. Both circuits were dying at that point. The Depression nearly wiped out both of, um, both of the, um, the mediums. And um, so they're on the vaudeville circuit in 1937, and they come up with this routine or somehow get this routine. There are many people who claim that they wrote the routine. The routine, uh, my friend Max Docelli, who's a comedian who broke in with uh, Seinfeld and Larry David and Paul Reiser and uh, Carol Leifler and uh, Gilbert Gottfried in the late 70s uh, in that Caroline uh, circuit in Manhattan, um, told me he had heard that uh, they stole the routine from a guy named Mike Musto, um, which may be true or may not be true. Uh, there are all kinds of stories. And Bud Abbott's wife said the routine was based on another old vaudeville routine and all that. Uh, and they may have gotten help from uh, Will Glickman and um, and uh, Costello's um, writer, John Grant. And um, Henny Youngman was on the Kate Smith show. And uh, Henny Youngman was go going to get an audition, I think at Paramount Pictures. And um, he told Ted Collins, who was the producer of uh, the Kate Smith radio show, which was a highly popular radio show in 1938. You know, it was up there with Jack Benny and Charlie, uh, rather Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. And um, Henny, told uh, Ted Collins, by the way, Ted Collins and Kate Smith ended up owning uh, a uh, National Football League team during uh, World War II. I think it was the Boston Yankees. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, Henny tells uh, Ted Collins, he said, I, I want to go. Uh, I want to try out. And uh, Collins wants him to go, but doesn't want him to go. And he says, well, you could go if you find the replacement for you on the show. And uh, Henny goes to some vaudeville theater and he hears Abbott and Costello. He sees Abbott and Costello. He closes his eyes during the routine and says, this would work on radio. Well, he recommends Abbott and Costello to the Kate Smith people, which is fine. Uh, and uh, they, they're familiar with some of their material. But one of the producers, and I could say this now because I'm never going to be uh, higher than radio again, uh, radio producers are some of the dumbest people I've ever met in my life. They don't really know what's good. I had one guy uh, when I was working at NBC Radio tell me, you don't know how to ask questions. And I said, you tell me if you've ever gotten an Associated Press Award for covering news, which I did in 78 and 79. He said, well, no, but this is the way you ask questions. I said, that's why you're a producer and I'm out in the field. I'm not changing, you know. So anyway, um, they go see Abin Costello, the producer. No, we don't want it. You know, we don't think it's any good. 
uh, but Adam Costello knew it was good. He said, well, what's your latest material? Well, this is it. We don't have any new material. This is what you get. It was a bluff. They had new material, but they wanted to get it out in front of a national audience. They did. You know, they killed and the rest is history. They're in the Baseball's Hall of Fame. And uh, one radio producer said it just wasn't good enough, which just goes to tell you, uh, don't ever listen to a radio producer. Go do what you're supposed to do, and it's probably better than whatever they're thinking. And Evan and Costello, you know, that was their ticket to superstardom, and they got it. That was March 24th, 1938. Talking with journalist Evan Weiner. His podcast is called The Politics of Sports Business. We'll talk some about that in a while. Now, when I was working with Mike Vick, one of the things he had asked me to do was to sing Take Me Out to the Ball Game, as Harry Carey had done. And the first few years, I just sang it the way everybody else sings it, beginning Take Me Out to the Ball Game, until the Ken Burns show came out, the Ken Burns Baseball Series. That show introduced me to what I thought was an unknown first verse of that song. And by that time, I was no longer with Mike. But by the time we got back, my broadcast partner, Jim Lucas, said, from now on, you're going to sing the Katie Casey version and see what Mike thinks about it, thinks what the audience sees about it. And if they like it, go with it. So you came up with quite a bit about that Katie Casey version, which I had never known. Oh, about uh, Trixie Frangenzer and all. The first verse, yeah. Yeah. um, Jack Norwood was on a uh, subway, New York City subway, and the subway opened, what, 1904, 1905. And uh, he's looking up, and, you know, they have the little ads on on the subway. Maybe not Dr. Zinsmore and his zits removal, which is all over the subway, was all over the subway. And uh, it said, ball game today at the polo grounds. He had never seen the baseball game, but he started to think about the ball game, the ball game, the ball game, the ball game. Uh, and um, so he's thinking and thinking and thinking, and he's a lyricist and he's also a singer. And uh, he runs into Albert von Tilzer. I have this this whole idea of a, of a song. Can you write the music? And uh, the song uh, starts out not as "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." Uh, it starts out differently, and uh, the lyrics, uh, I'm going to put the lyrics up here so I can tell you uh, what the uh, lyrics are. Um, the lyrics uh, start out with uh, Katie Casey singing, and Katie Casey is, uh, her gets a call from uh, her boyfriend, and her boyfriend says, uh, no, uh, uh, you know, uh, what do you want to do? Uh, what do you want to do? And um, she says, uh, he says, I know, let's go to the movies. No, don't want to go to the movies. Let's go somewhere else. No, don't want to go to the movies. Well, I'll tell you what you could do. Take me out to the ball game. First stanza, take me out to the ball game. Second stanza, take me out to the crowd, buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the whole team. If they don't win, it's a shame for it's one, two, three strikes you're at the old ball game. And that's what most people know about the song. 
Uh, I was reading something in uh, 2019. I was reading an op-ed in the uh, Washington Post how that may have been the first feminist song ever. And it, but it was written by a guy. But it was an ode to his girlfriend at the time. She was a vaudevillian by the name of Trixie Franganza. And she was a suffragette. And uh, Norwith uh, imagined this whole whole thing. And he had heard about, you know, baseball was so ingrained in the culture by 1908, you know, about balls and strikes, all that other stuff. So he writes that first voice of verse. And it's about a woman, a woman who uh, is a modern 20th century woman who wants to vote. Uh, and by the way, the um, William uh, Howard Taft, there's a story behind the first presidential pitch and maybe the, the, um, the seventh inning stretch because of the uh, women's suffragette movement. So uh, he writes about it and uh, it's performed by his wife slash girlfriend, Nora Bays, and they wrote Shine on Harvest Moon. And uh, it's the biggest song written in 1908. It's still sung 115 years later. Very few people sing Shine on Harvest Moon on a daily basis. And Von Tilzer didn't see a baseball game until 1940, Norworth until 1928. And baseball didn't embrace the song until 1934. That's when they embraced the song, and uh, Harry brought it back to life in the early 1970s at uh, uh, Comiskey Park when he was doing White Sox games. He would sing it in between the top of the seventh and bottom of the seventh, and when he went over to uh, the Cubs, that's when it exploded. Uh, but uh, baseball didn't embrace that song, and it was embraced in movies. Uh, Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra had a, a version. Uh, Nellie Kelly loved baseball games, knew all the players, knew their names. Uh, you could see her there every day, shout hooray when they play. Her boyfriend by the name of Joe said, to Coney Island, dear, let's go. Then Nellie started to fret and pout, and to him, he heard her shout, take me out to the ball game. That was a, a, another version of that song. Uh, but um, it was probably the first women's lib song. As far as uh, the suffragettes and William Howard Taft, he's meeting them um, in the Oval Office, April 14, 1910. It's uh, the opening day of the baseball season. And of course, Washington is at home and William Howard Taft did not want to give women the right to vote. And he's getting pounded and pounded and pounded by these women saying, why aren't you doing this? He slips a note to one of his aides, see if he could get me out of here. The, the Nationals are playing a game today. Um, they talk to the Nationals people. They set up a little presidential area for him. Um, and he goes, he wants to lift the spirits of the people in the office. And he gets out and he gets to the baseball game. And that's how the allegedly the, the opening pitch of baseball starts with that meaning start with the suffragettes and him wanting to get out. And then it's the seventh inning. And those games only lasted an hour and a half in those days. And Howard was uh, William Howard Taft was a big, big guy. He was 300 pounds. And those seats were only about 19 inches across. Today, they're 23. And he's getting uncomfortable and he stands up in between the top of the seventh and the bottom of the seventh inning. And uh, everybody in the stand stands up because the president's standing up. And if the president's standing up, we should be standing up. And then he sits down and allegedly that's the start of the seventh inning stretch. Although 
Taft might have done that in the 1890s in Cincinnati because that's allegedly happened in crowds in the 1890s in Cincinnati watching Cincinnati baseball. So uh, there were two things coming out of the women's suffragette movement, or three things maybe, uh, the song, uh, the first pitch, and also the seventh inning stretch, all because the women didn't have the right to vote and uh, wanted more rights. This wonderful game of ours produces so many stories which, to quote Cub Coda, if it ain't true, it ought to be. And those stories are just a few of those that baseball has produced. I'm talking to journalist Evan Weiner, the host of the Politics of Sports Business podcast. So tell me how that podcast got going and how you continue to produce it today. Well, in the eight, in the 1980s, uh, like I said, uh, games started to bore me. Well, maybe because in 1982, I was thrust right into the middle of the National Football League player strike, uh, which lasted about seven weeks back then. Uh, and uh, I covered some of the talks. Um, some of the talks were held at Hofstra when the Jets practiced at Hofstra. Um, I was at Giants Stadium uh, when the players struck. Uh, in fact, in 1987, uh, there was a movie called The Life and Times of LT, uh, which came out in 2013. And at about the 28-minute mark in that movie, you see me, and I'm not credited in this movie, nor was I paid, and I should have been both, but I wasn't. Uh, they used some stock footage of me talking to Lawrence Taylor, walking into Giants Stadium. And then they, I asked a question. And, you know, it was just a question I asked about who LT was loyal to, uh, the players to Wellington Marrow and his paycheck and all that. And it's in the movie. You can see the movie. It's, it's on YouTube, the movie. So it's called The Life and Times of LT about 20, 28 or 38 minutes in, whatever it was. And it's about the 1987 football strike, but um, advancing here the ball. So in 1982, I covered that. 1983, Lawrence O'Brien, the NBA commissioner, and Larry Fleischer, who's the head of the Players Association, started working on a collective bargaining agreement, which included a salary cap and also... Um, uh, drug testing. And Larry O'Brien was the target of Richard Nixon uh, in the Watergate uh, break-in in 1972, which is another oddity of my life. But I was dealing with Larry O'Brien on a weekly basis and, and Larry Fleischer, and they came to that agreement. Uh, 84, there was nothing going on. 85, there was a two-day baseball strike, which introduced me to Peter Uberoth, uh, who I knocked heads with a lot. I learned a lot from Peter Uberoth. I just didn't like him personally, but I did learn a lot about the politics of sports business from Uberoth. So there was that two-day baseball strike. 1986 was the mother of all of the sports business. I learned it was the USFL, NFL antitrust trial. Uh, Cosell was there. Cosell and I became friendly uh, because of that. Uh, and to this day, I'm still friendly with his grandsons, uh, Justin and Colin, who's the Mets PA announcer, along with uh, Jared, who was uh, ESPN uh, a lawyer. And uh, that was the Donald Trump suit against the NFL, which the USFL won, but lost because the uh, 
lawyer, Harvey Meyerstein, who won the case, was so startled he won the case, and then her, the only one, uh, only uh, won a buck, they forgot to ask the jury, why did you only give me a buck? The odd thing about Harvey Meyerson was he eventually went to jail along with his assistant, Dan Cooper, and they formed a law firm with Bowie Kuhn, the baseball commissioner, and he went to jail because of, uh, of the law firm because they built their clients. Uh, Kuhn somehow managed to escape, but Harvey went to jail and Dan Cooper went to jail. Um, so I got that as well, but I learned a lot about how business operated. Then we had that other NFL strike in 1987. And then, uh, then um, Reagan signed the uh, Tax Reform Act of 1986 into law, which basically opened the floodgates for all those new stadiums and arenas because under the right set of circumstances, owners could get 92 cents of, out of every dollar that was raised uh, in, uh, in the ballpark, parking lots, concessions, and all that, which is why you saw all those new stadiums built, all the expansion and everything else. Um, 1990, the, N the NHL, that was the NHL uh, strike by the players during the playoffs. And I and uh, I had the scoop there that uh, it was over because I got the call that some team went back to uh, practice. And then there was the 94-95 um, NHL strike. And then there was the NBA strike in 98-99. And by that time, I literally had a PhD in sports business and understood everything that went on in sports business. So uh, that's so I started doing uh, for... Uh, uh, Metro Networks in 1999, a, a daily um, minute uh, for their affiliates uh, show called The Politics of Sports Business, did about 1,800 commentaries before they pulled the plug because radio got really started plunging in 2003, 2004. And I've been doing this podcast for Genesis Communications for the last 10 years called The Politics of Sports Business. And it's basically the same stuff I encountered in 1982. We've been speaking on the Baseball Lifer podcast with Evan Weiner, journalist whose podcast, The Politics of Sports Business, can be heard wherever you hear good podcasts. And Evan, I want to thank you for taking some time with me today. Oh, yeah, it was a trip down memory lane as Joe Franklin. New York Yankees fan, Joe Franklin. Remember Joe Franklin? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, he'd show up at Yankee Stadium. That's where I got to know him with his long-time, uh, long-suffering assistant, Richie Orenstein. And you know who else was a big New York Yankee fan and has his number retired by the Yankees? You tell. Robert Merrill. Beautiful. The guy Robert Merrill. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a very, very quick story about Robert Merrill. And even though his uniform is not formally retired by the Yankees, it is retired by the Yankees. Robert Merrill was in, um, in Billy Martin's office. And for some reason, there was a uniform with uh, the fraction, one half in the office. <laughs> one half. And Billy Martin suggested to him, he said, hey, Bob, why don't you put the uniform on? Go out there and sing the national anthem with the uniform on. And, uh, and he did. And he is the only person in New York Yankees history to ever be on the field with the uniform number of, or fraction, one half. He was the man who sang the national anthem so beautifully for so many years at Yankee Stadium. That was Robert Merrill. 
Yeah, you want a quick you want a quick Robert Merrill story? Anytime. Okay. Well, first of all, he tried to teach Bill Mazur. I don't know if your audience knows who Bill Mazur was. He tried to teach Bill Mazur at his thing. They were neighbors. He was in New Rochelle and Bill was up in Scarsdale. That didn't go too well because Bill couldn't sing. But uh, anyway, one day uh, my wife sings opera and he he knew that. So he kind of liked me, Bob Merrill, because of that. And uh, anyway, so one day he comes up to me. He says, hey, big boy. I said, yeah, hey, how are you? He says, hey, tell me, do you know the difference between me and Sinatra? And I looked at him. I said, Bob, about a half billion dollars. He said, well, besides that, besides that. I said, no, tell me. He says, unlike Sinatra, I knew when to get off the stage. Beautiful. And you know, what I heard about him was, in spite of that absolutely marvelous singing voice, if he was speaking, you'd think you were talking to a New York cabbie. Yeah, he came from Brooklyn. Yeah, try out with the Brooklyn Dodgers, as a matter of fact. But uh, I, I, in my business now, when I think of me after all these years, I always think of Bob Merrill. And, uh, you know, he said, and he told me, he said that you got to know when to get off the stage. And every once in a while, I think of Bob Merrill, is it time to get off the stage? Sam Rosen, who does New York Rangers hockey games, same thing. He checks with his kids. Sam is in his 70s, late 70s now, I guess. He says to his kids, tell me the truth. Do I still have it or not? And Ernie Harwell had it until he was 93 years old. Um, Bob Euchre does. Bob Euchre does. But, some, but I always think of Bob Merrill because Bob Merrill said, I knew when to get off the stage. And I'm going to leave you with that. And Evan Wienerlein, thank you once again for joining us, and we'll be back in just a minute after a word from our sponsor. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860. 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here following our chat with Evan Weiner, sports journalist, podcast host. And while we did talk some about the business and politics of sports, which is his serious subject, we also had some fun talking about the comedy routine, who's on first, 
and the famous song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. If you're going out to the ball game or if you're going to tune into one, here's a few to think about for this weekend. The top two teams in the American League East, the Orioles in first and the Rays in second, they will get it on three more times this weekend, tonight, tomorrow, and Sunday in Baltimore, Maryland at Camden Yards. I'm recording this on Friday, September 18th. Out West, there's two teams contending for the wild card who are going to face each other for a three-game series, the Cubs and the Diamondbacks. That'll be out in Phoenix. And the Dodgers will get together with the Mariners in an interleague game. And while the Dodgers have pretty much clinched the Western Division, the Mariners are watching the scoreboard to see what happens with the Astros and with the Rangers as they play their games this weekend. The Mariners need to win and need to hope that the Astros lose one in their series in Kansas City. Next week on the Baseball Lifer podcast, my guest will be Bryce Weiler, the disability consultant for the Baltimore Orioles, and a young fellow who, like me, has done baseball broadcasting as a blind person, as I did in the 90s, along with doing many other sports, which we'll talk about next week. Grace Weiler will be my guest. And for now, this is Don Wardlow on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Hope you're with us next week, and hope you have a good week now. Mm-hmm.